Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. On this episode of Big Boys Don't Cry, we discuss the film Martha Meet Frank, Daniel and Lawrence. You don't have to have seen the film to enjoy the podcast. We talk about a whole bunch of other stuff as well, but it might help if you have seen the film just because there are some plot spoilers. So if you do proceed without having seen the film, just be aware that the plot will be spoiled for you. Enjoy. Hello. You alright? Yes, how are you? Not too bad. I was almost almost late to the podcast. I make it eight oh one as I as <laughs> we just start. Which is very unlike me. So yeah. I didn't have time to switch over the, from the non squeaky chair from the squeaky chair to the non squeaky chair. So I'm sitting in the squeaky chair, so I'm gonna sit here really, really still so as not to squeak. So there there's gonna be some potential squeaks. Potential squeaks, yeah. It's like walking into a mouse factory. <laughs> a mouse convention. Mouse convention. Yeah, it's like Comic Con. Mouse Con. <laughs> mouse Con 2018. <laughs> who's, who's the guest speaker at Mouse Con 2018? Rattigan from Basil the Great Mouse Detective. And he's that's villainous a pretty, as hell. That's a pretty good guest speaker. Yeah. Like, I'm imagining doing some kind of TED Talk-esque thing. <laughs> TED Talks for mice. Yeah. <laughs> like, how to burrow better into even tinier ho- holes, how to invade people's homes even worse. Have you ever had mice? Um, I did when I lived in London. Uh, yeah, that's not, that makes sense. <laughs> um, but not apart from that, no. Yeah, we had that. We had them in our old house. It was a recurring issue. An old ass house from the thirties. It was yeah, bits of it crumbling. And yeah, one time they they just used to appear out of nowhere. Suddenly, like you'd be you'd be watching TV, fucking mouse just like runs across the room. You're like, oh, okay, what's up, little guy? But they're smaller than you think. Yeah, they're tiny, absolutely tiny. They can get into the tiniest nooks and crannies. And yeah, they just kind of. You're right. They just kind of appear. Like tiny furry ninjas, yeah, and um, and yeah, they'll be gone in a flash. You'd be like, oh, I wonder where it went. So you'd have like a mouse ninja TED talk, like how to be how to be ninja, and then sponsored by um, Fruit Ninja, the once popular iOS game that's probably now in need of a boost. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd have things to avoid, like how to avoid traps. And apparently, mice hate mint because in our old flat that we lived in years ago, we also had mice. And then we put out a bunch of mint plants, and they they stopped coming around. So, oh really? Yeah, because I heard that that worked, but I never tried it myself. Yeah, mice hate mint. You heard it here first. But like, mint's well good. What's wrong with you, mice? It's nice. Do you do you want your breath to stink, mice? <laughs> oh dear yeah but enough about the mouse kingdom how's your week been yeah it's been all right yeah it's been a while since we last spoke in fact it has yeah it feels like a feels like a long time if we don't have yeah. if if we don't get one in each week 
then yeah, it feels like a really, really long time. We're recording this in the same week as the release, where often we usually try and be one week ahead, but you know, sometimes we've been busy. I've been busy playing baseball or training baseball in school cricket nets, I should say. <laughs> but um, yeah, it does feel it feels like we haven't done one in a while. But this is our fortieth episode. Forty episodes of yeah. excellent content. We're middle aged. <laughs> this is where I get another tattoo and buy a motorcycle. Yes. Well, yeah. If you have any ideas for what we could do for our midlife podcast crisis, then <laughs> email us <laughs> bigboysdon'tcrypodcast at gmail dot com. But yeah, if if we were to truly see that analogy through, we'd have to then admit defeat and die aged 80 or 90 and i actually want this to go until we are genuinely genuinely 80 or 90 so if podcasts even still exist in 50 years time we'll be live streamed into people's brains old old senile rob and paddy and we'll be talking about like we'll be talking about adam sandler movies (laughs) yeah do you, do you remember when when Adam Sandler predicted that the video games would come and take over the world? <laughs> he was only twenty years early, wasn't he? <laughs> Guys, this week we're going to talk about Big Daddy. I don't know if any of you remember <laughs> Big Daddy. <laughs> There've been a lot of advances in cinematic technology since, namely that every film now is literally like an open world landscape that you insert yourself into and it's the most amazing VR experience. It's probably, you're probably in some kind of Ready Player One scenario, but like, yeah. And then there's us. Like Everyone's like off enjoying all of their wonderful, amazing fantasies, living out this amazing fantasy life in the Matrix. And then there's just us in a little room talking about Big Daddy. <laughs> We're talking about um, the VR re-release of Bridges of Madison County, <laughs> where you can go in and touch the ridges on Clint Eastwood's face. Well, I thought you were going to say the ridges on the bridges. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of virtual reality and the future of storytelling, it's um, something that Steven Spielberg has talked about before, actually, is how um, how VR and the advancements in VR and allowing people to sort of step into storytelling, how it might actually damage the art of telling a story as a whole because they won't have that same focus on a singular theme or a singular narrative will be more like experience-based, like video games, which is one of the reasons why video games are extremely compelling but don't always stack up in the storytelling department is that it's more of a sort of like experience rather than a narrative. And I think the way that that Steven Spielberg sees it is if people aren't careful, the, um, the auteur is is going to become obsolete because people will want something different and he was kind of saying oh it would be a shame if that did happen and they should find a way to integrate the two of them together as technology advances is this your way of saying that we need to watch tron (laughs) (laughs) it's my way of saying that we need to watch um tron 2 tron legacy um yeah Um, yeah. no I, i think i'm inclined to agree with spielberg there actually i think um I guess what he's saying is that if everything becomes a kind of virtual reality world, world like open world experience, where previously it was a, a linear narrative or a narrative presented, you know, that you could only experience in one way, then people come to expect to be just inserted into these worlds rather than to deal with a story. 
So the tradition of telling stories is then is then lost. I don't think it'll ever be completely lost. You know, it's the same. The kind of people who think it'll be completely lost are the same people who thought that by this year the printed book would literally have completely died out. And you know, we're looking at ebook sales have plateaued at about thirty percent. But yeah, I, I do I do think that we'll see a lot more of that as a kind of dominant culture in the future, even if it doesn't go towards destroying stories completely. Um, like game, the better that games and VR experiences get, the more that film, I think, as a medium will suffer. Books won't, because there'll always be cranky old people to buy books. <laughs> Do you not think that... Because I, I kind of think that those experiences will run alongside, because people love a good story. Yeah. And so I don't think that movies will cease to exist. Um, I think there'll always be a space for people wanting to tell stories for it. Because, I mean, it's one thing like living a living an action movie and being part of that and sort of like following like say for instance the expendables was a futuristic vr experience and you could be one of the expendables and basically follow them around like that would be a really interesting thing but would it necessarily work Mm. as well in something that was much more narrative driven Um, would you end up identifying with the characters in the same way and caring when one of them dies or gets shot or has whatever catastrophic climactic moment of the film and the story that element of the narrative could be lost yeah exactly um and that that's part of the reason why video games sometimes don't hit the same emotional heights as um as movies or books is that because there's always some kind of player autonomy it's very very hard to care there's very few times in open world games for instance where you end up caring a lot about a character in like a serious way Um, because you have that control over the situation so much and rather than focusing on the characters you're more likely to go off and do your own thing so the only games i can think of where you really get an emotional attachment to characters other than the main character i suppose are um like Rockstar's games so grand theft Mm. auto uh grand theft auto 5 or red dead redemption where in red dead redemption you really became attached to some of these other parties within the within the game although you still cared most for your main character but apart from that i can't really think of any open world games where you really grew attached to other characters in the world see it's not open world but i always think of final fantasy 7 in this instance because spoiler alert for final fantasy 7 one of the the player characters not the kind of main character but one of the players who is in your party of people who you use in turn-based combat and stuff gets slaughtered about halfway through the the game and it's actually quite shocking um because you don't expect that to happen it's you know it's like killing killing off a character in a kind of game of thrones middle of the season kind of way and that i think you was quite revealing in terms of emotional attachment to the characters i remember everyone i spoke to about that game finding it really shocking um and i wonder if the if games are able to capture that without I guess that was more of a narrative thing than than an open than it being kind of open versus linear, but it was a it was a big deal. Because what's interesting is that games that do have permanent death mechanics often you grow attached to the characters, um, but generally you help create those bonds yourself. So there's these games called XCOM, which are like tactical shooter games, and you sort of build up your little squad of people, um, and as they progress if they die it becomes a real impact because together with your characters you've helped create these stories these these close battles 
Um, and I suppose the Fire Emblem games work in quite a similar way. Hmm. Where if you're if you're playing Fire Emblem and you're not playing it with permanent death on, you're doing it wrong. Hmm. Because it adds so much to the game to have that included. Um, have you played the again, iOS version? No, I haven't. No. Um, I haven't I've either. It's I only good. recently found out that it exists and then I was like, I'm not going to download that because I will end up playing it all the time and not doing anything else. <laughs> Um, and, and do you know what the Nuzlocke challenge is? No. Is this is this the new like is this like neck neck nominate or one of those like <laughs> teen things or like the latest one which is eating Tide Pods or dishwasher tablets as we call them in this country? Are you about to Logan Paul me? <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> uh, the Nuzlocke challenge is something that the Pokemon community pl- does, where they'll play a game of Pokemon. But you're only allowed to catch one Pokemon per, like, root of the game. Um, so for one little bit of the game, the first Pokemon that you see, you have to catch. If it's a duplicate, you let it go, and then it has to be, like, the next new Pokemon. You only have one chance to catch it, and if you don't get it, you don't, you don't get a Pokemon on that route. And if any of your Pokemon die in battle, they haven't fainted. They have to then be released, and you can't use them again. Wow. That's and how, it's, that's and it's like this really Pokemon. Yeah, and it's this really big thing in the Pokemon community, and a lot of like hardcore Pokemon players do it. And again, it helps create a real attachment to the characters more than when you're playing Pokemon and you're just playing it and you're like, or oh, I've caught a ratata in the in the bin with it. I've ticked it off on my <laughs> yeah. list. Now like now like when you catch a Pokemon, you have to train it carefully and nurture it and try and not let it die basically and it's really interesting the way that people have like devised their own way to create a better or a different gaming experience Hmm. you could end up unreasonably attached to a pidgey well yeah exactly because if you catch a pidgey then you've to to get the most out of it you've got to train it and everything like that whereas most most players would catch one and then just immediately swap it in for something better when it comes along yeah I mean, you might manage to get it into a Pidgeotto and then even a Pidgeot, if you're lucky. But at the end of the day, Pidgeot still sounds like a vegetable. <laughs> An obscure one. You know, a sort of long, disgusting bean that turns up in your meal on holiday in Eastern Europe. Yeah, and you're like, oh, what's this thing? And you Google it and you're like, oh, I don't care for this. Uh, it's a Pidgeot. Should have gone to the McDonald's down the road. Exactly. But, you know, this is why we're leaving the EU. Yeah. That, that's, you know, we don't want these weird foreign vegetables. <laughs> if we want vegetables, we want them running for Parliament uh, for the Conservative <laughs> Party. <laughs> yeah. Double barreled named vegetables. <laughs> well, I think, I think if, um, what Pokemon do you think various politicians would be? Like Boris Johnson mm. is definitely muck. Like they've got the same face. They they definitely are the same thing. I'm just because I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm going to Google Jacob Rees Mogg Pokemon and see what comes up. The okay, the top hit Pokemon soft toy uncle rescued by the internet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. From Game Boy to Augmented Reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Police catch two Pokemon fans, 12 out seeking monsters at 4.30am. And then, <laughs> fifth fifth of the way down, 
Euroscepticism is now mainstream, Jacob Rees-Mogg says. There's not much <laughs> not much in the way of Rees-Mogg Pokemon content. Let's see. I think he'd be he'd be the middle evolved form of Bellsprout. I've forgotten what it's called. Bell End. <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg evolved into Bell End. Yeah, that's the that's the final form. <laughs> We're talking only original 150, right? Yeah. Yeah, search where would he be in now. the <laughs> um, I'm going to make sure that safe search is on before I do that. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I see it. I see it. Yeah, no, do just... you, I reckon there's a little bit of mog in that in that Pokemon. Yeah, Jacob weeping mog. I mean, Theresa May kind of looks like a raticate. <laughs> yeah, she's got that kind of ang- angry jaws. Yeah, so I reckon she'd be Eradicate. They're, they're also all the most irritating Pokemon in the game, yeah. if you don't realise. <laughs> all the worst ones who appear at the beginning when you're just trying to train up your, your good one. Who'd be like, Well, I should catch them. Um, Corbin? Because Zubat, no, is, Zubat no. is officially the worst of the Pokemon. Like, officially. Oh, okay. The most no. irritating. Is is that so? Yeah, because it's is like according you're in, to players who've been polled. You're in the middle of a cave and like you're running low on potions and you're like, ugh, I just want to catch like this Clefairy. And like you'll you'll step on a thing and be like, Yes, what's it gonna be? Come on, let it be a Clefairy. And it's like, nope, it's another Zubat. Oh, and it won't let me run away, and it's used Confuse Ray, and now it's trying to suck my blood, but it's really slow and it doesn't really do anything, and you're just stuck there. Also, I really hate that Zubat's evolved form, Golbat. It's basically just the just the Zubat with a, with the giant mouth taking over its whole body. <laughs> this shit. What kind of evolution is that? It's it's like um you know how when very small children try and draw people, but they just draw like a face with arms and legs poking out of it. It looks like a five year old <laughs> tried to redraw Zubat, <laughs> and then they were like, you know "That'll that, do." You know that Golbat now has an evolution. What? It's called Crobat. Crobat? Yeah, so C-R-O-Bat. And that is the final form. And it's a very living-looking Pokemon. Oh, yeah. It's got four wings. It looks less livid than Golbat, though. I think it's because of the big mouth. No, yeah. It's it's like got a smaller but more livid-looking mouth. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, welcome, I'm welcome to Pokemon Cast, guy. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we'd do a very good podcast about Pokemon if well, we were I, I, allowed to talk only about the original 150. I I have some knowledge outside of the original 150. I've been playing Pokemon games, a, a bit of a guilty pleasure. I do love a bit of Pokemon. My my favourite of the most recent Pokemon is the Ice Cream Pokemon. I've forgotten what it's called. There's an Ice but Cream it's just, Pokemon. Of course, there is. Yeah. It just looks like an ice cream cone, and then the evolved form is like one of those double ice cream cones. <laughs> I've just stumbled across this um, thing. It's, um, it says, original 150 Pokemon, according to my boyfriend. I'll put this in the show notes. It's one of those things where he's tried to remember the names and he can't remember them. He's got a few of them. He's got Bulbasaur, Big Bulba, and then Biggest Bulba. <laughs> and then it, it goes on like that. So Charmander, 
big Charmander, flying Charmander. <laughs> and then you've got Squirtle, Bertle, and Bowser, which is fair. That's fair, yeah. Stalk Pecker. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them are quite literal. <laughs> a, tr- a tree. <laughs> you know that one that looks like a tree? <laughs> I know the one that looks like a tree. This is very good. There is some very good content on the internet, isn't there? There is. Um, I'm glad that we're contributing to it. The um, the other great Pokemon that's been added recently is the, is the Pokemon that's just a bag of rubbish <laughs> called Trubbish. And then there's Garbodor, which is the evolved form, which is like a big trash heap. Okay. I'm, I'm not even kidding here. The, these are Pokemon that actually exist. Garbodor. Oh yeah, it's a it's a big a big bin monster. <laughs> so if I if I catch one in in the next Pokemon game I play, I think I'm going to have to call it Trash Island. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I, I've told you a little bit about my my naming systems for Pokemon games. How whenever I have a fire type Pokemon, it's always called Guy Fieri. Yeah. Yep. And, and stuff like that. There's certain Pokemon where you have to, you've got to name them something. I think you mentioned that on the very first episode of this program. Oh, did I? Yeah, because we were talking about Guy Fieri. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah I think you're right, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Guy Fieri is always my, my, like my Charizard was called Guy Fieri the last time I played a Pokemon game where I could get a Charizard. Because, um, you know, he's great. And it's a perfect name for something that shoots fire. Yeah. Much like how he shoots fire into our hearts. You got to pronounce it Fieri. 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 Yeah. Fieri. <laughs> Fieri. Yeah. But anyway, we've got a film to talk about, haven't we? Now, we this, do. This, is a, this film is called Martha Meet Frank Daniel and Lawrence. Which struck me as quite a clunky title at the time, and it's a film that I wasn't previously aware of, but that was requested by a friend of the podcast, Killian Curran, a number of times, and it looked interesting. But it's got people in it who are quite famous now, but maybe weren't so famous in 1998 when it came out, um, three years after the Bridges of Madison County, and <laughs> <laughs> it's. Um, I'm always intrigued when a film like that comes up that I haven't heard of, because it means that it probably not that i'm an authority but it's like it means that it probably hasn't endured and there's probably some reason why that film hasn't endured and in this case you know you could tell why it hadn't endured because there are a lot of issues with it would you say that's fair i think that's fair yeah it feels it feels like a very dated kind of film um whereas some 1990s rom-coms they um, they kind of stand the test of time. There's things in them that really makes them stand out. This one, the only thing that really sort of seemed to separate it from what you'd see as a standard rom-com was its weird sort of like time-jumping mechanics where you'd so- it'd sort of show you a little bit of the past, a little bit of the future. And, and sort of that kind of structure made it kind of different from what else you'd seen at the time. Um 
but yeah, apart from that, it seemed it it was very. I when I when I first watched it, I remember thinking this is, feels like just a standard rom com, and I don't think that's really changed. I, like, I think I said I watched it about a decade ago. I can't remember exactly when. Um, you don't remember how you stumbled across it? No, I think maybe it was even rented from Blockbuster or something like that. Blimey! Yeah, something like that. Even you were, were um, you going through a Joseph Fiennes phase? <laughs> I'm permanently <laughs> in a Joseph Fiennes phase. <laughs> Um, we He's should we should man. also we should point out that the film is also named by the name The Very Thought of You. Yeah, in the US, which I yeah. think is actually it's an incredibly cheesy and dumb title, but I kind of prefer it because Martha Meet Frank Daniel and Lawrence is deliberately clunky, but um, it still feels clunky even though you know that that's kind of what it's trying to do. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm I, I'm not too keen on either name of it. Um, the very thought of you sounds like <laughs> sounds like some big power ballad. Yes, the kind yeah. of song that comes on on Magic FM when I'm in the barbers getting my hair cut. <laughs> Your barbers they play Magic, Magic FM, FM on. The barbers. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. and um, I always go like after work, so it's usually about six fifteen, six thirty when I'm in there because I've like, gone the way home from work. Um, and yeah, they've always got magic in it. And it's always like the most power ballady power ballads. And there's always a Phil Collins song. And the guy who cuts my hair will always sing along to every single song. And then we'll talk about the artists and he'll say, did you know he divorced his wife by facts or these kind of facts? He's full of facts, my barber, <laughs> Colin. He really knows his stuff. Shout out to oh, Colin, that's amazing. my barber. Thank you, Colin. He's good. Colin. That, that's Colin. awesome. Yeah, my, my barber's... <laughs> <laughs> my barber's is just is a hip place that's opened up just down the road from my office oh not a hip have, place they always have some cool music on and i'm like yeah you guys seem nice and they're, they're all very friendly have um, they got like a little dj in the corner they they don't have a little dj in the corner i haven't asked them to put little army men in my hair and cover me in paint <laughs> um, you should <laughs> i should be a well weapon um <laughs> That's a little reference to Nathan Barley, which everybody should watch, particularly if you're quite... It holds up so well. I mean, it's one of those shows that has been quoted endlessly, talked about endlessly, um, where a lot of people feel that perhaps it has jumped the shark. But genuinely, I rewatch it very often and it still holds up really well. It's still just an incredibly funny pastiche of hipsters and trolls. It's almost like... It seems as though the further it goes on, the, m- the more parallels you can draw to real life. It- it's one of those, if you're familiar with like Hipster London, it's a great television show because it really sort of like encapsulates that kind of media mindset in a, in a, in a brilliant way. Um, and yeah, it's, it's one of the funniest TV shows ever. It's so good. Yeah, it's well, Jackson. <laughs> It's a lot better than Martha Meet Frank Daniel and Lawrence. You know, you could spend... Nathan Barley, they're half an hour each, aren't they? And there's only six episodes. So it would only take you two hours. And I think Martha Meet Frank Daniel and Lawrence was actually quite a short film. It was only 88 minutes, which is about the average length of a 90s Disney film. So, you know, if you had to choose between the two. But it felt kind of longer because it was quite meandering and rambly it felt a lot longer than it actually was did you find that yeah i'd say so i think yeah if you've got the choice between three hours on nathan barley or watching martha meet frank daniel lawrence 
um, go with <laughs> go with go with Nathan Barley. Um, I think I, I I found it a very interesting film to watch, even though it was quite clunky and quite meandering. And what I found interesting was like how extremely 90s it was and also how it has all of these actors in it which went on to do various other things and you can kind of see like the very early stages of those character of those actors and sort of like how they were going to develop in this film if you know what i mean yeah definitely Um, so from that point of view i found it really really intriguing to watch and it really yeah it was a real curiosity especially for all of them because it's obviously helped a lot helped their careers a lot but is never mentioned in their kind of career respectives like you know it's tom hollander he's that guy from martha meet frank and daniel lawrence what no but um yeah from that point of view it's very very interesting and the writer who's the guy who wrote it is has also written a lot of famous stuff and i wrote down his name and i can't remember it Uh, peter morgan peter morgan He's he created the crown on the Netflix, which, as I've said, is the only thing about the royals that I can remotely stand to watch. <laughs> so yeah, so Peter Morgan, right, has written this rom com in nineteen ninety eight. Um, but he's then... seen the bridges of Madison County, and he spent three years, you know, gestating his own huge romantic story. But then, like the next feature film he wrote was the Last King of Scotland. Yeah, so. <laughs> He's gone from this to The Last King of Scotland. He wrote television in the meantime. Um, and then he wrote The Queen, the um, the pretty good Helen Mirren movie. That um, film is all right, actually. Yeah, Frost Nixon. That's uh, good. The, Dam- the Damned United, which is a... I know it's about football, Paddy, but it's a, a great movie. I, I feel um, like I, I, could, I could get into it. Michael Sheen, as we yes. know. He's the best person in the world at maniacal laughter. And is a wonderful actor, and even I do think that um, Brian Clough is someone that transcends football, just in terms of being a really, really interesting person and towering historical figure. So I, I think I will get round to watching it at some point. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting film. It's definitely worth watching. Um, and then, yeah, so so the Damned United, uh, Rush, um, another another sports based biopic, another film that's worthwhile watching for even for people who aren't into formula one it's a very interesting look at this rivalry between two incredibly talented racers um, <laughs> i genuinely thought you said two incredibly talented racists for a second <laughs> is it can you can you be incredibly talented and be a racist mm. or, or well, no, does... i think it was more the implication that is very talented at being racist two two people who are really good at being racist yeah Speak, it just speaking rolls of off the tongue and 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 uh, he's been involved in the writing of um, Bohemian Rhapsody as well, I believe the um, the the Queen uh, biopic that's coming out. With the Rami Troubled Malek. Queen biopic, yeah. It's just I think Rami Malek's going to be really really good. Although I did think that Sasha Baron Cohen would also have done a very very good job. Yeah, I mean they both would have been amazing. Um, I really love Rami Malek, and I'll I'll be interested to see him take on a very different role from what he's previously been in. Um, yeah. as well but i think like sasha baron cohen would have been great as well um like i think there's there's lots of they both would have brought real strengths to it um speaking of racists though um <laughs> katie hopkins oh <laughs> yeah isn't thought, she in I've jail mentioned... in south africa right now for being racist 
yeah she she so she went off to south africa to try and do some hit piece for isn't it the tommy robinson's like right wing fake media conglomerate that's vaguely the the (laughs) media conglomerate that's tied to tommy robinson she's now working for because she's too racist for the daily mail um she was going over there so she was going over there to talk about um white farmers being forced out of their land by by evil black people they're so evil um and um and basically she then took ketamine was (laughs) hospitalized and um and now she's being uh she she's uh she's been imprisoned for inciting racial hatred um which obviously you know south africa now doesn't take that kind of thing very lightly no um so it's going to be interesting to see what happens to her next um i'm hoping they don't send her back i know that sounds quite mean but no they can they can definitely keep her yeah if you i mean if you really really want to keep her and go through your due legal process south africa um i i fully support the autonomy of looking after katie hopkins and making sure that justice is done yeah absolutely and i don't you know i don't i'm not in the habit of wishing ill on people but she is a genuinely very very hateful and horrible person so it just finally feels like maybe if she's been arrested for inciting racial hatred then maybe she's getting a taste of her own medicine the the one thing that i i found very funny was that i saw katie hopkins has been hospitalized after taking ketamine and someone commented i hope the ketamine is okay (laughs) (laughs) and that that gave me a good old chuckle also, did you see that her house, her hideous giant house on the outskirts of Exeter, is up on right move? Really? Yeah, oh my god! It is absolutely hideous. I looked at it the other day. It's like a five-bedroom mansion, not far. It's sort of on the south side of town, so a little bit out of town. But you could conceivably walk into town. Um, it's a little bit away from the student areas that we would have known when we were students there, but. Still close enough that she might have been living in proximity to us if she was living there at the time, but yeah, it's a very it's the furnishings are absolutely hideous and hilarious, and it looks horrible, and it's on for a lot of money, and I don't think she's going to get it, and I hope she sells it for a lot less than it's worth. I yeah, I I, I haven't seen her house, but I might be intrigued to to look it up. Um, she's uh she's an interesting and awful human being, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think I'll just leave it at that. If she was um, a film, which film would she be? Interesting and awful. Uh, interesting and awful. Um, God, I don't know. Something Search like Troll Two. <laughs> no, because Troll Two's got charm. <laughs> yeah, she'd interesting be, and evil, but not charming. She'd be like, I don't know, like one of those crappy sharknado movies where <laughs> yeah. like it's deliberately made to be awful and everyone knows it's made to be awful and they think they're much cleverer than they are by pretending to be awful but they can and never it's about actually... the seventh or eighth film in the franchise by which point the the bad shark film has jumped the shark itself yeah i think yeah that that's totally right so i reckon she's like she is sharknado five our favourite basement dwelling, brain force plus drinking, soy hating, <laughs> idiot, 
Paul Joseph Pris- Watson. Prison is like, Planet Soyboy. He he's like number eight, and I think like Alex Jones has got to be like number two. He's he's got to be pretty early on because he's yeah, like one of he's... the original asshole nutters. <laughs> he's the godfather of ass nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So so yeah. That that's what movie series these people would be. Um, and yeah, we sort of. I, I think it's important to put these people in in a good category. Um, yeah, it's important yeah, to they... contextualize them and compartmentalize them, and make sure that you know you know where you stand with them in terms of yeah, filmic but... analogies, because that is how we understand the world. You know, this is think... this is why we need films to be linear narratives that we can pin things onto and understand. You know, when we get to the open world Sharknado universe in fifty odd years time. And I'm trying to convince my grandchildren to watch the bridges of Madison County instead of that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where I'm going with that. Only that I keep having this vision of me trying to explain to like a great grandchild why they can't. No, you can't go in the and walk across the bridge. No, you can't touch Clint Eastwood's face. No, it's just a film. And he's like, but I want to grab the leathery man's crying face. <laughs> Tough. I want to touch the linoleum they talk about so much. <laughs> I want to go in there and give her some Italian accent lessons. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, oh. So, yeah, Peter Morgan, when you look at his his quite impressive CV in terms of writing credits, you look at Martha Meet Frank Daniel Lawrence, and it's almost like juvenilia, isn't it? It's almost like, a sort of, it's like someone's early work before they really hit their stride. Yeah, you're right. It's 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 really strange because it's so different from what else he he did as well. Um and it's the same with um with the director as well Nick Ham who went on to direct um The Hole, which is a very tense sort of thrillery horrory type movie. Not seen that. Um with uh, Thora Birch and Kira Knightley and um, and it's about these these privately educated people who decide to go down into a bunker rather than go on a school trip. Um, but things don't necessarily go well for them. Um, and then uh, he did a movie called Killing Bono, which was not quite as... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought it would I be like... I haven't seen it, about... but I remember seeing the trailers and thought it looked very interesting. Yeah, I was hoping it was going to be like a heist movie, like Ocean's Eleven, apart from it was about people trying to assassinate Bono. <laughs> Bono's Eleven. <laughs> Bono's Eleven. Um, but it's supposed to be Bono's Eleven billion dollars in tax that he didn't pay. Fucking bull bag. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, it, it feels like early work for them, and in, in a good way. You know, it doesn't feel like, oh, you, you should never have made this, you terrible people. It's just that, yeah, you could you can tell when you watch it that it's early work for people who later did much better work. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one of the and like there's there's little snippets here and there that point to like better things in the future. So uh, it, it turns out that Joseph finds he's been um, he's been he's talking been. to this <laughs> he's been <laughs> sitting on a random person's couch. Um, so so he thinks he's been talking to someone throughout the movie and you kind of assume that it's a a psychologist about these these various adventures that he's had um and all of these sort of like chance meetings with martha 
Um, and at the end, he's like, oh, thanks for that. Um, but it turns out that he's accidentally been to the room next door to the psychologist, and it's a, just a random builder played yeah. by um, Ray our, our lovely Ray Winston. Main man, Ray um, Winston. Who's, yeah, <laughs> who's really great, and it's a really great little moment. That um, is the best thing in the film by far, actually. That made me laugh out loud. That was a genuinely really, really good moment. When um, he, Ray Winston, he's just, he's been talking to him for a long time, and then Ray Winston lets him go, and he's uh like he's been, a, he's come across as quite a hard nut, and he's he's been timing him as well. So you're like, why would he time him? But um, which is quite weird. He's quite a weird character. But then when Joseph finds is leaving, Ray Winston says to him, "I can't believe there's a psychiatrist next door, but you chose to talk to me. I'm honoured." And he's like emotional about it. <laughs> that really, really, <laughs> made, that, that really tickled me. That was a moment of really, really like huge promise in terms of comic writing. Yeah, that was it was really good that that moment. And it kind of like it showed, oh yeah, there's definitely something going on here. Like there there's there's potential within the people who've been involved in this movie um to do something interesting, um, which I liked. Um and it's the same with the cast in general, I think. You've got Rufus Sewell, you've got Tom Hollander, you've got Joseph Fiennes, um yeah. and you've got Monica Potter, who I don't really know from very much other than this movie. She was in Con Air, uh, which is a, a film is I absolutely love. Is that a Nicholas, Nicholas Cage film? It is a Nicholas Cage. He's, yeah. uh, so he's married to Monica Potter, I believe. Oh, wow. Power um, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and uh, so he is a, he's a military man who's then, he accidentally kills someone in a drunken fight. And so he's sent to prison. And then he's being transported to be released, but he ends up getting put on this plane with a bunch of the most evil people who are in prisons. And it's like, that seems like a weird thing to do. And then they manage to break free because they've got this plan and they're like, we've taken over the plane. And that's why it's called Con Air. Uh, um, right. and then so he's, he's on like, a plane oh. with Katie Hopkins, Alex Jones and Prison Planet Watson. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, he, he's on a plane with John Malkovich, who has he's a, he's a character called Cyrus the Virus, which is <laughs> second only to Hannibal the Cannibal. In they clearly wanted a a name that rhymed here. Um, yeah, and it's like That's gloriously it's, dumb. Yeah, it's one of the most silly good movies I've ever seen. It it's it takes that kind of die hard esque approach to um, to action. Um, and it's yeah, it's really good fun. It's definitely yeah. worth watching. It's got our main man John Cusack as well. Oh, great, um, great cast. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's, it's really it's appropriately silly, but still action packed. And it doesn't take itself seriously, but it doesn't fuck around too much either. It, it yeah, walks that line quite well. Yeah, it's a great film. And yeah, so she's in that. She's um, she's the wife waiting at home for Nicholas Cage to return. Oh, right. Um, and I, she's in a show recently called Parenthood, which I have not seen, but about which I have heard, I think, good things. Yeah, I've heard good things about Parenthood as well. Um, it's got our um, our bloke in it. What's his name? Uh, Ray Romano. Oh, Ray Romano. Yeah. Oh, Ray, yeah, who, who was really fantastic in The Big Sick. Yeah. Um, yeah, oh, in that case, we need to watch that show soon because I thought Monica Potter's performance in this was quite good. And again, as as a young a young actor, given this quite actually quite dull role where it's mostly just about the men chasing after her, I think she did quite. A, she her performance was quite good. 
And she chose the handsomest of the three men. She did choose the most handsome of the three men. I think if, in terms of handsomeness, I think if Tom Hollander didn't have those ridiculous sideburns, he's a handsome guy, Tom Hollander. Yeah, he's a handsome guy who often plays unhandsome roles. Like, um, I always think of him as the the sort of harried MP in in the loop, and as as, as the Rev as well. Did you ever see Rev? Uh, I I've watched it a very long time ago. I haven't watched it in a very long time though. Yeah, um, I, so I haven't I in a while. Like the first but series, but that was it. He was very, very good in that as a, as the funky priest. But yeah, he's quite a short, a short but handsome man. But yeah, in this, he's not made out to be handsome at all. He's almost like a, a American caricature of a British person. That like his teeth are quite bad. I don't know if that's deliberate, but it seemed like you could tell he had bad teeth and bad hair. But was like a rich guy. Um, sort of swaggering about town and his performance as that was very very good and coming across as sort of quite entitled but still sort of British and not over the top you know it was very British in its approach yeah yeah exactly um and and yeah he's also in um the Pirates of the Caribbean movies as well um and he only appears in the bad ones but he's like the best thing about the bad ones where he's like he's the big bad he's the real nasty fella um, cool. And he does a really good job of that as well. Um, he was also recently in um, Taboo, which I don't know if you saw at all. No, wasn't that the very, very overly expensive thing that cost the BBC a lot of money and was just a lot of violent pirates shouting at each other in in taverns? Or... No, <laughs> it cost it cost a lot of money, but it was more sort of like a very weird, vaguely supernatural drama. Um, that had like a real horrible atmosphere to it um so lots of people went into it being like nothing's happening i was expecting tom hardy to turn up and just punch a load of people and like that <laughs> but never instead really you got tom hollander instead of tom hardy and you get you get tom hollander and tom hardy together um and it's a really interesting series um that sort of toes the line between the supernatural crime syndicate set in this very, very specific time period um, of the friction between America and Britain and between Britain and Europe um, and between Britain and its own colonies in Africa. And so it's it's this really interesting setting. Um, and, yeah, it's a fascinating TV show. And, and again, yeah, Tom Holland is in that and does a really good job. And um, it was written by... Tom Hardy and his dad, yeah, I did which that. is which is great, um, and yeah, it's yeah, it's a really good show. I highly recommend people watch it. Yeah, um, that's cool. And yeah, it, it got a bit unfairly treated because I think people were expecting something a lot more traditional from it, but it's actually quite odd in a good way. Yeah, um, S- sounded like it was too weird to be on BBC One. Yeah, they were expecting more cool the midwife, but with more people getting punched. It's like why? Why is there no? Why is this not like? What's it called? Downton Abbey. Why is this not like Downton Abbey? I thought this was a period drama. Why is it not about babies? Why Everything there... has to be about babies. In this, the rich people aren't very nice. This doesn't match with my sensibilities as someone who watches primetime BBC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rufus Sewell would be a bit more suited to that kind of audience, wouldn't he? Because I think of him as being like a period drama sort of haughty hunk. Yeah, yeah. And 
he's an interesting one is old rufus because like he often plays the the bad guy i guess um someone you think is good but then it turns out he's bad yeah exactly so he fills that role quite a lot so like a knight's tale i think is like the the perfect example of how Mm -hmm. rufus sewell is used in movies but um he's he's a very diverse actor in general i think in terms of what he can do um and like it's interesting it's interesting to see him in something that's very different from what else he normally does as well in in martha meet frank daniel and lawrence yeah it felt like an interesting role for him it felt like he was doing a bit of a with nail and eye kind of thing almost, mm. with his with his long coat on like just shambling about the park he was the he actually got the least in terms of character development and investment i felt so i think he kind of got a bum deal yeah i agree with you he kind of he kind of remains the same and i guess it's kind of the same for tom hollander where like they purely sort of like exist as as red herrings for the overall romantic plot of the film um and although they have a little bit of development in that they hate each other and they have a fight and then they like each other it's yeah. it's still kind of like they're there purely for comedic purposes and to like help develop like the idea of the chase in the film i guess is the best way to describe it yeah that's fair so really it's joseph finds love story and they they're just kind of they're red herrings along the way but actually they do spend a decent amount of time on each character and it feels almost as if actually they didn't spend enough time on Joseph Fiennes, even though he's the main guy. I still kind of wanted a bit more about him. Or in fact, a bit more on both of them. And there are bits of like long conversations and scenes that kind of dragged the story along where I didn't really get that much out of them. I felt like it's just them talking about each other in a pub or talking about um, uh, Martha and never really getting across much about what's so great about her, really. And then they're all kind of weirdly chasing her around and they keep having the coincidences of running into her and the idea that the three of them would have run into her separately and then and then it would all come together is very very far-fetched and i think that side of it the logic of that doesn't work and that kind of puts you off a bit because they 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 each kind of spend a bit of time with her and she ends up she stays the night with joseph fines but they, they don't sleep together she just sleeps on the bed because she's tired um, and then in the morning, she like goes to get coffee in the square and leaves him a note saying, go and meet me. And then they all show up to bring her flowers and then they all have a fight, which is quite funny. Like, it's a really hilarious sort of little schoolboy brawl. But how did Tom Hollander and Rufus Sewell know that she was there? So the way that I understood it was that she asked all of them. Ah, so she so did it, it deliberately. A, yeah, it was a reveal. To make them fight. Yeah, to like show because she believed that it was all sort of like a cunning ploy um to be like oh yeah these people are just messing around with me because i'm a a new girl in london that kind of thing um as opposed to it being a like because i'm a milwaukee american dream girl yeah um so so it was kind of like a she was then like doing a gotcha for them and be like i know what you were doing you bastards and then it was her yeah. chance to like have joseph Fiennes then say no but i really like you and then they're like we'll go away but then he has his 
choke and he chokes in the moment and she runs off yeah he can't say anything so instead he goes into the travel agent but it turns out she's there as well and she's watching him and then she gets on the same plane as him and surprises him in the same way that at the beginning of the film um tom hollander bought like met ran into her in the airport and then like tried to creepily buy a ticket for her to sit next to him on the plane and it didn't quite work out because she sold the ticket to someone else which is is quite a, a funny little moment but yeah the ending of it mirrors the beginning in an interesting way where it's like oh of course they're going to get together and it's going to be it's going to be happily ever after and they're going to iceland no one ever went to iceland in 98 right yeah that was that was before iceland became a hip holiday destination um so yeah it's quite it's quite neat to see it there and be like, oh yeah, no, I'd love to fucking go to Iceland. It's on my it's on my to do list of holidays to go to Iceland. Um, but there, it's kind of seen as this this weird place that nobody knows very much about. So it's it's a film that tries to set up this kind of love square or love quadrangle of the three three men who are best friends and this woman who drifts into their lives. But it mostly just kind of follows her drifting around and having sort of vague conversations about her life and why she needs to get away from it in back in the US that don't really amount to much. And then suddenly you're at the point where they're all fighting and then, of course, she's got to pick one. So, I don't know, something about the the, the plotting just and the characterization just didn't really work for me. And I can't quite put my finger finger on it, but it felt like it was lumbering towards those points whilst actually spending more time investing in their friendship and sort of funny little conversations and moments. There were lots of very, very funny and enjoyable moments, but they were kind of disjointed. And I'm not quite why. I'm not quite sure why, you know? Yeah, I think I think you're right there. There is this real disjointedness to it. Um and I think it's yeah, it's an it's an odd one because you're kind of hoping that there won't be that detachment between like the plot and the individual interesting moments, but it's almost like they were kind of devised separately. Um, and I don't know whether it would be, I don't think it would flow any better if they had it in a traditional linear narrative. I think, I think the fact that they have that separation actually would probably help make it feel less disjointed. If you know what I mean, because yeah. you've got that kind of interesting framework to take you away from the fact that actually the plot itself isn't exactly the most interesting thing in the world. No, and if you didn't have the device of Joseph Fiennes telling it to Ray Winston as the fake psychiatrist, you wouldn't have the reveal moment, which was the best moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's yeah, it's a mixed bag. Let's put it like that, I guess. That's a, that's a good way to put it. It's a real mixed bag of things. It's got quite good sort of funky music playing in between all the different scenes. It's all just vaguely funky little idents, quite like that. And the use of real London locations was good. It made me sort of quite nostalgic for 90s London because it was in 98, you know, I'd been 10. I'd been um, going up to London a lot with my dad and going around and getting on those those old buses and going to all those places and stuff. Although the, um, the Regent's Park, the cafe in Regent's Park that they go to is now the, like, sports hub where I go to book softball pitches. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, amazing. That. Um, and he goes you, you to spoke um, about... audition at the National Theatre. Um, and the, you get to see the backstage at the National Theatre. It's quite cool. And did you notice it was um, one of the other blokes in the audition, Stephen Mangan? Yes, yeah. Um, and you had... A, it there, there's, lots of great, 
there's lots of great little cameos in it as well because you've got Rob Brydon as well. There's a bus driver. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and Steve Spires too, who you'll probably recognise from like various random things. Um, yeah. And yeah, so there's all these there's all these nice little cameos in the movie. Um. Uh, you mentioned the music and like there were some really good little moments in there where you're like oh wow this is a cool song I've not heard in a while so it had like Ronnie Size as part of the soundtrack yeah. uh, more Chiba as well oh, and they even they, they played a Texas uh, song as well and I was like oh Texas whatever happened to Texas I don't know they were actually from Scotland weren't they they were indeed yeah um, yeah, so all of, all of that Spiteri. was good. Charlene Spiteri. And there's a very good um, moment where they go to the art gallery, and I can't remember which art gallery it is, but they're sort of tittering at all the modern art in quite an amusing way, and in a way that I think you should do, because a lot of it, okay, the, the Damien Hurst type stuff is shit, but they're, they're kind of, in 1998, there was a lot of reverence, I think, for modern art it was really at the height of the kind of Hearst YBA type stuff and for them to show people just openly mocking it was quite a funny thing to do I thought yes I I think you know about what I do in in art galleries where like you draw willies on the paintings exactly no well you know that like there's a certain limit to how much I'll have interest in looking at and being interested in art and like I'll, I'll I'll be like permanently like oh yeah that's a cool piece but eventually i'll get bored and then it will return it will it'll eventually descend into a hey you see that guy that's you that is <laughs> so yeah. it will be it will be go into a room of a gallery find the stupidest looking person in a renaissance painting and then turn to whoever you're in the gallery with and just go, yeah, that's you, that is. <laughs> I believe I once did that to you many years ago when we went. We were at the Welcome Collection. I once did that to you of a painting of a man having sex with an owl. <laughs> yep. And I believe that's probably what kicked it off for me, is, yep. is that. That, that, has, that. Since then, I have had permanent joy in, in art galleries across the world. Um. I think yeah, the, the National Portrait Gallery is the best. Yeah, you can't you can't beat it. Although obviously, if you are in the Tate Modern, you can do. You see that crystal skull. You <laughs> see that crystal skull. That's you. That is. Yeah. Um, You're yeah. Angry and bony and covered in bling. <laughs> I am permanently covered in bling. It's true. Yeah. So that was good. Also, they use Stansted Airport, which is I've never flown from, but which I assume is a shit airport because it looks like it is the worst airport ever. Um, it's it if you have the chance to spend extra money to not fly from Stansted, do it because getting there is always an absolute pain in the ass. When you're there, you'll be permanently depressed, and it will kind of put a dampener on your holiday as a whole, just by sheer by the sheer fact of being in Stansted. It's like so much worse than Gatwick or, or Heathrow. And Gatwick's pretty bad now as well. Yeah. Have you ever flown from, flown from Luton? No, no, I've never flown from Luton. Me neither. I was just going to say, what, which is worse, Luton or Stansted? Because they're both those kind of periphery rubbish airports, aren't they? 
Well, Luton, I've been to Luton as a place and it's an unbelievably depressing place. So I can't imagine the airport is much better. <laughs> Apologies to any of our listeners in Luton. Yeah, but but if you're from Luton, you probably understand that it is it is a bit of a depressing place to be. Yeah, well, the um, the great poet John Hegley comes from Luton, and he does oh, a lot there we of go. poem poems and songs about Luton. So that's good. It's, that's, um, that's one poet more than Chessington's got. <laughs> you're a poet, buddy. unless you count me. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm looking at famous people from luton the guitarist for jethro toll cool um i think that's pretty good clive barker but not the clive barker who's a horror writer uh, a sculptor called clive barker Hey, <laughs> I couldn't. I just can't resist. I actually, I actually really love Aqualung as a song. I think it's great. It's a brilliantly weird song, isn't it? It's you get yeah, that kind of riffing opening. Couple of couple of minutes of standard rock stuff, and then it's all I'm um, your flute, fluty man in the woods. He suddenly yeah. grows go- goat legs. <laughs> it's it's like it's the kind of prog that just doesn't exist anymore and when people try and emulate it these days it just sounds crap but at the time it sounds amazing and is still so of its place it's like it's the kind of music that you'd have in the background whilst reading a wizard of earth sea it's exactly that kind of thing Um, i need to reread that yeah i need to reread them all because i read the original trilogy but i never read the fourth or fifth books in the series I, I never read the fifth because I've got the book that's the Earthsea Quartet. So it's the mm. four in a set. I had that. Whereas, yeah, I read them. My my dad had some very old paperback copies of the first three. Um, and, yeah, I was I read them a lot. Um, particularly, I always remember being astounded by the second book in the series because it was so unlike anything I'd ever read before. Hmm. where like you read like a fantasy book that's aimed at kids and like the first Earthsea is very different from your usual fantasy fair but it still kind of feels vaguely familiar um but the second one is just so completely abstract and different that it really takes you aback particularly when you're a child reading it yeah um it's absolutely fascinating then it all comes around full circle full circle with the final book of the original trilogy I remember being um, quite weirded out by it, actually. And, and like, I, I loved, you know, I think I read it, I'd already read Lord of the Rings by the time I got around to it, but it was like, it was, that felt so kind of linear and lumpen compared to this huge, engaging world of all weird stuff that she created. It was just, it's just great. I need to revisit it. But I haven't read any of her other books. As someone who's been on my list for a long, long time, because I've got a bunch of them sitting around at work, because we're her publisher. And that she like books of her nonfiction as well, and she was just a really amazing, incredible person. And it's very yeah, she, sad. She's she one of one of she my all time. She did, yeah. She's one of my all time favorite writers. Um, she was particularly good at getting like teenagers and youngsters to think about things in ways that they hadn't before, which I think is very rare in books of that kind. Um, so, uh, so the beginning place is a book that she wrote, which has kind of gone under the radar, 
but um it's about these two kids who are sort of transported into this weird fantasy world and like that all seems very familiar but then it takes this real turn i don't want to spoil it in case you actually read it but there's this particular moment where like they come across this beast uh that they're sort of supposed to slay and everything like that but it's very different from what you'd expect to happen and sort of like the fallout of what happens is very different from what you traditionally see and it really hits home when you're young even if you don't quite understand what the implications were and what the message was behind it um and that's very true of a lot of her books so like the lathe of heaven is a Mm. phenomenal science fiction novel um up there with the best sci-fi around um and yeah she was she was amazing absolutely amazing yeah i think i'm gonna get onto the left hand of darkness once i've done once i've reread the the earth sea ones yeah, because those um, what were they called? The the book series, uh, the the something cycle. Um, I'm not sure. The the Hainish cycle. It was called. That's it. Um, that, and the yeah, they're all cycle. very. <laughs> and they're all like the heinous, very. Hainish cycle. Hainish <laughs> cycle. They're 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 all very strange novels. Um, but again, totally different from anything else. I remember like when I was very young, picking up a copy of Rock Hannon's world, which is the first novel in the Hainish cycle and just being like, what the fuck is going on? I have no idea, but I love it. Um, did it confuse you as much as how in Martha meet Frank Daniel and Lawrence, Joseph Fiennes teaches bridge for a living. (laughs) Who the fuck teaches bridge for a living? The nineties like, were a different. I, I know time. that people want to learn, but like, how could you? You couldn't make money doing that in today's economy. Yeah, the nineties were a different time. You've got a struggling actor who doesn't take jobs, uh, someone teaching bridge, and then what is he? Isn't he a music exec? Yeah, yeah, he, he's like the, the rich music executive who's always wearing like powder blue suits and really ugly stripy ties and stuff. And <laughs> yeah, he seems to be that he's like the high flying one. Because making, making rec- record deals. It's really similar to. Um, it, it just made me think of the John Niven book, Kill Your Friends, which I don't know if you've read. No, I haven't. Um, which is basically like American Psycho, but in the Britpop scene in the 90s. All oh, right. Um, and in the music industry. So he's like this music exec who ends up sort of like killing off his competition to try and get ahead in the game. It's a really funny book. Um, and yeah, so when I saw this guy walking around like in a wide suit, uh, flashing the cash and everything like that. I was like, oh God, this guy's going to get killed off by the protagonist of Kill Your Friends any minute. <laughs> also, all of their clothes in this film were super baggy. Like, yeah. did you notice that? Was that is that like a 90s fashion thing or was it just because they couldn't afford good wardrobe? That was a 90s fashion thing, was baggy clothing. Like, um, Joseph Fiennes' jacket was two sizes too big for him. He looked yeah. like a ridiculous little boy in it. That that's what people look like in the nineties, Paddy. And and you think back now, think about how in twenty forty we're going to look back at what we were wearing in the twenty tens. Yeah. And it's gonna be cringeworthy. Be like, I can't believe yeah, their their, sure. their trousers were that tight as people are walking around. Like, their their clothes are like all separate items. We just wear like uh, like morphic bodysuits now. <laughs> 
Media's walking around in onesies everywhere. Yeah, can you believe people used to like wear different separate items of clothes? How vile. Imagine all the washing. <laughs> Can't believe people used to wear clothes. How disgusting. Yeah, clothes. Ah, <laughs> you clothes wearer. <laughs> so yeah, the 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 90s-ness of this film was something that really struck me, but in a way where I was thinking, well, 10 Things I Hate About You was released the year after and it feels a world apart from this, but that's American 90s versus British 90s. And this film really illustrated that actually there's a huge gulf between the two culturally. Yeah, and I think it's interesting is that our culture has generally kind of moved closer to American culture since the internet became such a thing that it is today. Whereas before there was a real... And, like, you can still see it in, like, traditional television over here, like EastEnders. Like, EastEnders could not exist in the States. Hmm. Um, and, but, like, in general, they're, 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 we're much closer culturally. And particularly in terms of the things that we devour in a cultural perspective. Um, and, yeah, so it did feel unbelievably British as well, which is part of the reason why I find it quite interesting, I suppose. Yeah, it was very, very British, and it was definitely tr- it was it was self consciously British and trying to be so. And you know, I'm all for British independent filmmaking, which I guess at the time this would have been quite a good example of. But we've also been so conditioned to enjoy American romance and comedy and all of these things that I think this film just felt a bit drab in comparison to films like Ten Things I Hate About You. Although obviously that's a high school thing, so it's completely different. But America, other American films of the time, it, it feels drab in comparison. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think, like, there's also the issue of budget here and expectation. They, sp- they spent it all on huge jackets. <laughs> and, like, it's easier to... I think it's better to compare it to... Um, to more adult-minded movies of its of the ilk that came out of America at the time, rather than like the pure high school style story, which has its own tropes and ideals and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I'd rather watch this than The Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> oh no! I'd I'd rather watch The Bridges of Madison County, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> It's all only because you want to fuck Clint Eastwood on the Lenanism, Paddy. <laughs> well, obviously. Am I that shallow? Is it that obvious? <laughs> yeah. He, he's more handsome than, than all of those men put together. You know, I like him grizzled. <laughs> but yeah, I, I oh, do appreciate that it's a, it's an original story rather than a Shakespearean plot onto which a high school story has been grafted. So it's not a fair comparison by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, it's also because I love to talk Britain down, you know. And I mean, in general, Britain is, like, terrible. There's no getting around it. But, like, it, it feels like a very different movie to, like, even the likes of, like, you know, that we, we've talked about um, You've Got Mail, for instance. Hmm. And it feels very, feels very different and very flat in comparison to even that. Um, flat is the right word because even though they're quite interesting people and there's some witty dialogue, it's never quite clear where it's going, and that gives it a certain flatness. I think. 
Yeah, and so like it it's more sort of like a chasing Amy style film, I guess. Where it's supposed to be that. propelled by the quirky characters. It's it's a Kevin Smith movie. You know yeah. what you're getting. There's some dialogue. I've se- I've seen Clerks Clucks and I like that. <laughs> Clerks Clucks. Or Clucks Clucks. Um and I enjoyed that. I thought that was a that was an enjoyable film. Yeah. That's the it, only one of his films that I've seen. It, it, like he he's fine. Like he hasn't made a good movie in a very long time, but you know, that's the same for a lot of people, isn't it? Um yep. he I think Dogma was a great film that he did. Um mm. which was very, very different and very strange. And that was a great film. And like Chasing Amy is 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 decent. More rats is very good. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, like so it's kind of I think Martha Meet Frank Daniel Lawrence is kind of more along those lines where it's supposed to be like a quirky, more adult slash teenager demographic to watch it. It's like um, it's almost like pre mumblecore British proto mumblecore, isn't it? Without meaning to be so. It's it's actually vaguely along those lines, isn't it? Yeah. Um although I think that might be giving it a little bit too much credit. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely written and not like improvised or yeah. Although although apparently um Rufus Sewell would improvise a lot on set. So I think he was like just gunning for it, which might, which yeah. kind of comes across in his character. Is his, even though his character is probably the least interesting, he manages to sort of portray it in quite an interesting way. It's I a character suppose. that lends itself to dicking around on set, on set, and yeah. in front of the camera. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I'm wearing my long coat. I got no money. I just skipped out of my audition. Fuck you. But I'm looking at the list of other films that we've watched and there aren't many that we can compare it to. And it is interesting that we actually have talked about very few British films. I don't know what that says about romance and Britishness and Americanness and what, but the fact I think that we've watched mostly American films, I do think there's a certain element of conditioning in that that has clouded my view of this film. Well, I think the other issue is the steady defunding of the British cinema industry Mm. hasn't, hasn't helped matters. But I mean, there are some really interesting British rom-coms and classic British rom-coms that we can watch. So like Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill, for instance, we haven't picked up Mm. on yet. Um, So like there are, there are great movies out there that fit that template, but, but like the, it's a topic for another day, I think, but the slow destruction of the British cinema industry is something that I think is a real shame. And Definitely. Like, you, and you know what? I've never seen Four Weddings. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, okay. We'll have to watch that sometime soon. Yeah. It's got to get bumped up the list. But yeah, I know, I've somehow just managed to avoid it. I've seen Notting Hill. But yeah, never saw Four Weddings. Oh, wow, Okay. Um, yeah, we'll have to watch that sometime. But yeah, but yeah, I, th- I think that's probably got a, a quite a bit to do with it. Is you know, Britain, Britain in terms of cinema, it's mainly sort of like the exceptional that gets made. I'm looking and down the list the, here, and the, I was I was about to say <laughs> we did watch William and Kate the movie, but that's an American film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an American. It's you an can't pin that Americans on the British idea, <laughs> idea of Britishness. Yeah. 
even even the Brexit British can't take take credit for that. Um, I think we have not actually watched a single British film until this one, in terms of it being a British director, um, British company, shot and shot oh, and set in Britain. Love Actually. Love Actually, of course. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, actually, Love Actually. Yeah. Well, actually, Love Actually. Yeah, and we and we we took a bit of a dump on love, actually, didn't we? So, on the the holiday, does the holiday count? Uh, it's kind of it's split between the two. I think the Christmas ones don't really count, do they? Um, love actually definitely counts. The, ho- the what holiday I'm trying to say count. is that Martha meet Frank Daniel and Lawrence was poison to me because Zac Efron wasn't in it. <laughs> The Ephronator. Oh, the Ephronator. Who who so, would he be out of the three if you were going to recast? Oh, he'd be Joseph Fiennes, definitely. He'd be Joseph Fiennes. He'd look really, really great in an oversized brown leather jacket. Who would you... Who, who, so he'd have the Ephronator. You'd have Shia LaBeouf in Rufus Sewell's role. Ugh. The the jobbing actor. And then who else? Who'd be the, who'd be the music exec guy? You could go for Tom Holland instead of Tom Hollander. <laughs> that that would work. Not Tom Hardy. <laughs> but yeah, do you do you think there's something to that that we're we're conditioned towards American cinema? I think, yeah, I th- I think we're less interested in British movies, um, because. I think maybe part of it comes down to the the fantasy of Hollywood cinema and like the spectacle of Hollywood cinema that immediately draws our interest to it. But I think also, I, I do think a big factor is funding, promotion. Um, funding and promotion holds back British cinema um, and for, the, the gradual disintegration of government grants for, for filmmaking as well, which used to create a lot of interesting movies um, as that slowly disintegrated over the years. Um, it's slowly taken away the power of British cinema, as well. Um, so I think yeah. those are the those are the primary factors. This is true. It all comes down to cash. It does indeed. Meanwhile, there's infinite money available for garbage kids films. We went to see Coco <laughs> at the weekend, and like, whenever you go and see like a, a good kids film, like a Pixar film, there's always like five trailers for just the worst crap you've ever seen. <laughs> and there's also they're. Um, there's a new Peter Rabbit, and usually I'm usually I'm not one to to say that you shouldn't update like old stuff and try and make it new and modern and relevant. Because a, a good example of that is the recent Peanuts film. Have you seen it? No, no, I never got around to watching that. It's utterly charming. It's lovely, and it retains the spirit of the Peanuts strips and original cartoons while still bringing it completely bang up to date by using kind of modern music and stuff. But this new Peter Rabbit. It was just so hilariously clunky and bad in an attempt to, like, inject some kind of humour that he was sort of, like, acting a bit street and gangster and, like, like oh, it's I can't even explain it, but it, it was almost as if they might as well have just had him put on a backwards hat and walk into the walk into the house and go, what up, you rabbit motherfuckers? Like, it was just so... <laughs> it was some of the clunkiest shit that I've ever seen in my life and it made me cringe. Well, isn't it bloody James Corden? Is it? 
Yeah, well, he's... that explains a lot. But yeah. our main man Donald Gleason's in it, and I like him. It's he also plays directed the, ma- by... the man in the Rabbit World. It's directed by EZA and Friends with Benefits director Will Gluck as well. Oh no, really? We and like you're kind him. of like, what are you doing? Why are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing this to us all? Will Gluck, he ain't no cook. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I will not be seeing that, sir. But yeah, there's infinite money available for for complete garbage, and not enough British cinema being made. But but as as we keep saying, <laughs> once we once we leave the European Union, it'll, it'll all change. Yeah, uh, everything's gonna. Be We're gonna put that paint that on the side of the big boys don't cry bus. <laughs> three three hundred and fifty million for British film. We're spending three hundred and fifty million on European cinema. We should be spending that on British cinema. Yeah, the big boys don't cry bus. By the way, is just my car. My <laughs> two thousand three like, golf. It's more like the Venga bus. <laughs> the big boys bus is coming. Three fifty million for British cinema. Yeah. <laughs> the British bus is coming, and everybody's crying. <laughs> We have run out of money. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be us in, you know, whenever Brexit happens. It might yeah. not. It's going to happen. There's yeah. lots of people saying that Brexit is not going to happen. It's going to happen. But the people are too scared of angry, gammon-faced racists <laughs> to to not let it happen exactly as the angry, gammon-faced racists want it to happen. I love that um, gammon in that context has now become a noun. Like a gammon. I was talking to a gammon. <laughs> I know, it's brilliant. And and people are angry and calling it racist because it refers to old white people and it's discriminatory. Yeah, it's racist no, against it's white people. It's racist against fucking gammons. <laughs> Just chill out, get yourself a fried egg or a nice ring of pineapple. Yep. And chill some chips. Out, you massive gammon. <laughs> But yeah, this uh, Martha Meet Frank Daniel Lawrence was, you know, it's 20 years removed from now and just feels like a very, very innocent, innocent time. And I sort of resented the cheerfulness of it, you know, <laughs> the, Lon- the, in- the, um, the lightheartedness of London in 1998. It was very, very hard to engage with on that level. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, there's this detachment and it's the same that... I, I love Spaced as a TV series, mm. but there's that same level of detachment where, like, how the hell are these two people still affording to live in this flat? Yeah. How can how can life be that easy for people just, like, 15, 20 years ago? Um, and, yeah, it's the same kind of thing here, where it's like there is this detachment to, to modern day. Um, but it's quite interesting to look at, look at from um, from that respect, I suppose. Yeah, as yeah, we often end up saying about these kind of films when we're looking back on them, you couldn't make that now, and you couldn't now, because she wouldn't be able to afford the flight to London for a start, so it would it would never get off the ground literally. But you know, you'd have Tom Hollander would probably be someone's you know if he's working in the music industry, he's probably one of those dickhead gig promoters. Um, you know, Rufus Sewell as a you know, an actor would be, you know, we'd be working a thousand gig economy jobs whilst going to the the odd audition. And then you'd have Joseph Fiennes teaching bridge on YouTube, I guess. Maybe, maybe he'd be making it work. 
you know, I read a thing about this week about a guy who's making thousands of dollars vaping on YouTube. So, you know, everything's possible. Yeah, well, there we go. There's always, there's always a chance, isn't there? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting looking at this movie as like a little time capsule of days gone by. Yeah, it's a, it's a curiosity in romantic and British cinema, for sure. So, shall we move on to onto a rating for it? Yes. Have you? Do do you have any trivia, or have we covered everything? Um, the only trivia I have is that apparently Nicole Kidman, Jennifer Aniston, and Courtney Cox were also in the running to play the lead role. Blimey! Which, yeah, some interesting names behind it. I think any one of them could have done a great job. Yeah. Um, and maybe I like not to discredit Monica Potter, but. If it had been a larger name, perhaps the movie's legacy would have lasted a little bit longer as well. Absolutely. I, I definitely think that, yeah. Especially if, if it was Jennifer Aniston, everyone would know about it. Because mm. this was sort of like peak Friends era as well. So that yeah. it would have Monica been Potter huge... has an interesting CV, but nothing. she's not a huge name. No, no. Um, which, yeah, no, full credit for her performance in the film. Um, and obviously for her performance in Con Air, which is one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it would have been interesting to see like an alternative timeline. Where, Anyone who's played uh, Nicolas Cage's wife gets a pass. <laughs> oh dear. Um, but yeah, so ratings. Uh, let's see. How many old ladies are at the table in your bridge class? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, you got 20 I'm seats gonna, available. There's 20 seats available. How many turned up to my my enhanced bridge class? Bridge 2.0. Bridge 2.0. I'm going to go with 11 people turned up. Yeah, that's that's fair. I was I I'm going to go for a 10. They were, yeah, more or less in the same ballpark. It's around the halfway there, halfway mark. It's a British Bon Jovi. <laughs> it's a sting. Yeah. <laughs> the police, or as they're now known, sting. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's a very, very interesting film that I think you should all see. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to... Um... It's interesting to see. Yeah. Um, and thanks to Killian for recommending it. Yeah. It's, it's probably wouldn't have gotten around to it otherwise. Yeah, it's been nice to rewatch it after so many years as well. Um, and yeah, so it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, and yeah, it's definitely worth seeing just to see a very different look at romance to like modern day yeah. cinema. Yeah, it's a, definitely a breath, of, a breath of stale air in terms of what we've been... <laughs> <laughs> I heard someone use that expression about Vince Cable the other day, and I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So it it is your choice next. What it is my what choice. Are you, what are we lining up? It is that was my so, choice. Yes. Yeah, so I've had a request in as well um, to watch a movie called Table Nineteen, which is an okay. Anna Kendrick film um, the... that was only released last year, I think. Cool. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you anything about it, which I think is a good way to be. 
Yeah. So um, you know, we got we got to deal with the request. We got to give the people what they want. Exactly. So yeah. So, so we are fair, going to the bridges of Madison County was a request. <laughs> <laughs> But where would we be without having watched that film? I know. My life would definitely... It has really enriched our lives, for sure. Definitely. Um, but yeah, so Table 19 is is next up. Cool. Good choice. Hopefully I can watch it on Amazon or whatever, because I, I had to order a DVD of Martha Meet Frank, Daniel and Lawrence, and now I've got a DVD of it in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and on the front... It's got some really hyperbolic quotes, like it's the best rom-com ever and it's British. And then in tiny letters underneath for attribution, it says Daily Mail. Oh, no. Daily Mail. <laughs> oh, cool. So I have just one other thing to talk about, which is that friend of the podcast, Adam Molesky, has tweeted us with an update about um, our questioning of the name Dodge in uh, the film... Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, which was last week's film, um, Steve Carell's character is called Dodge, and we both mocked it and were like, why is he called Dodge? Apparently, Adam says, I took this as a reference to a character that needed to, quote, get the hell out of Dodge, his normal life personality. And then he's given us a link to the Urban Dictionary to get the hell out of Dodge. Are you aware of this phrase? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of I... took it as meaning that when they when they named the character... Oh, and you still um, thought it was dumb. And I still, I still thought it was dumb. <laughs> sorry, I had, um, I had never heard of this expression. So, oh, I really? Oh, just okay. a, a big ignoramus. But, yeah, <laughs> it's to get the hell out of Dodge, to leave somewhere immediately, to evacuate or scram. Cool. So, thanks for that, Adam. Thanks for making me feel like a big fool. <laughs> I'm looking back down the Twitter. Um, my dad has tweeted us a picture of Terry Crews, or it's a retweet of him smiling in the car with the hashtag black men smiling. And it's beautiful. Yeah, I saw that. It's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Love Terry Crews. He's great. Cool. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Or are we no. done here? I, I think we're done. I think I need cool. to go out and meet a man called Frank Daniel or Lawrence. <laughs> yes you do so well thanks a lot for listening as always this has been the big boys don't cry podcast um you can email us big boys don't cry podcast at gmail.com tweet us at big boys don't pod don't pod i'm almost done compiling the chart so i'm going to tweet that very very soon the, the bridges of madison county is quite low but not the lowest scoring film in the chart would you believe oh, really? um, so i'm going to tweet that very very soon keep that under wraps um and yeah, please, if you if you like the show, leave us a, a review or a rating on the iTunes or wherever you get your pods. All adds up, you know. You've got to keep us in Clint Eastwood's. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about Table 19. Alrighty. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye-bye. Alrighty. Thank you. Bye. Find your
you want to 